Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Healthy Parenting, pitched by Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. My name is Jason Grant Enriquez, and with my co-host, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Latanya Benjamin. Hi, Jason. Hi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. In recognition of October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we've invited Dr. Erica Bloomquist, a breast surgical oncologist with the Memorial Healthcare System, to give our listeners tips about talking to your kids about a breast cancer diagnosis. Can you imagine that? Very important, I mean, because I wouldn't know what to say. Exactly. First of all, just dealing with the gravity of hearing that you have a cancer. Absolutely. And then having to get to, the strength to tell your family and have how much that conversation. Yeah. I don't know if I could do it. So we'll have some important information to talk later. Absolutely. But before we get to that interview, we'll spend a few minutes chatting about a couple of trending topics in the news. So along the line, about helping our children, it's going to be great to talk about some suggestions that have recently come out in the headlines about kids and how they can cope with stressful news such as this. Absolutely. And on a less serious um, note, we want to talk about how young <laughs> is it to really get a tattoo or that's, that's stressful. That's stressful for parents. <laughs> for the parents, that's for sure. So. I'm looking forward to that. Very interesting. Before we move on, though, here's a word from our sponsor. For eight years, thousands have been united by one cause, to support Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital at its annual Tour de Broward event. Funds benefit the entire hospital. You can ride, run, walk, have fun with your family in the Power of Play Kids Zone, or simply donate to the 2018 Tour de Broward being held on February 25. Visit tourdebroward.com to register and help make a difference. Welcome back. Before we get to today's guests, Let's bring in one of our producers, Bahadi, with what's making news in the parenting world. How are you both doing? Bahadi. Awesome. Hey. <laughs> awesome. So today I want to talk about two different topics. First, um, too young for tattoos and piercings. So, Jason, I know you have two tween teen boys. They'll always be too young. I know. <laughs> <laughs> have they come to you to ask about getting a tattoo or piercing? They have, um, oh. only because... Daddy, uh, in his earlier 20s, uh, experimented with the tattoo. And ah, confession he, time. Yes, know, right? okay. It's, it's a dragon. <laughs> it's a tasteful dragon. It's, it's on my back. I, I forget it's there. But it's that small? It's, it's like no, that. actually, it's, it's palm, palm size on my oh, back. But okay. I forget it's there. I don't ever see my back. So um, I'll be in the bathroom. and Dad, Dad um, why did you get that? And I'll say, um, youth. <laughs> Youth and mistakes. Right. Um, so yes, they have brought it up. So could, could I get one, maybe? I said, when? <laughs> I mean, the bass of my voice came out. Uh, I told him, guys, honestly, a tattoo is very permanent and very expensive to remove. And mm -hmm. if you are going to choose to get one, it's going to be probably after you've lived half a decade on this earth. And then um, it's got to be something that you're never going to like regret. Right. I... I can say that if I had a choice, and <laughs> I see I'm stuttering now, I wouldn't have gotten this. In your wiser years. Exactly. Wiser because yeah. it was it was fun at the moment, sure. you know, it, it was a two for one deal, you know, it was. <laughs> and I thought it was only women that exactly, like sales exactly. and shopping. It was two for one. Too. So me and I, my homie's like, we can do this. I haven't spoken to the guy in a while. So the point is, though, is that um, it's, it's very permanent and yes. it's got to be something, it's got to be something dear, very dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. We all grow, we all change. So mm -hmm. whatever you mark up on, you may not like later. Right. So that's what I've, basically what I've told them. No in girlfriends and boyfriends and phone numbers. And names, and right. Names. And 
So back in the day, most people with piercing and tattoos were usually kind of fell into some very um, predefined groups, ex-cons, artists, or gang members. Clearly, that's changed. Um, I'm an artist. You're an artist. <laughs> <laughs> that's the group that you fall in. And we also see it in the military. Yes, yes. the military. Yes. Exactly. So that's a exactly. That. Military um, service um, men and women. So obviously today, it's gone completely mainstream where you have kids as young as 10 being marketed fake tattoos. And I'm talking about like Cracker Jack Box. That's well, very true, yeah. And, and the, the claw box. and those yeah. things. Yeah. And yeah. They yeah. get all excited and it looks yeah. really cool. Exactly. Do you know that those even have dangers? Really? Oh. Absolutely. As a dermatologist. Dr. Benjamin, please. Please, yeah, detail. Even the, even the little tattoos where you wet the back yeah. and just place it on your arm. Oftentimes, um, those are what we call the henna tattoos. Yes. And they often come uh, contain a chemical PPD which is used in commonly hair dyes, and it darkens the color of the tattoos. So I see children with a lot of allergic contact dermatitis or allergic reactions on their skin to these temporary tattoos. So Wait, kid, are, hold on. So there's more than one <laughs> yeah, reason. I'm I'm just sometimes. No, because my, my son, Joey, has um, had a rash of like eczema, mm -hmm. and he, he loves those tattoos. And I don't know if it's on the same side, but could it help? It depends on the tattoo and how much... Um, chemical they have in it. I remember this case. I actually took it, a picture of it for a lecture. It was the Roadrunner, and right. the outbreak outlined the entire tattoo, oh and it was the black, the black coloration, the wow. darker color. You know, because wow. tattoos will be multicolor. They have red and mm -hmm. greens and so forth. So it's the one that makes the darker dyes can actually cause an allergic contact if you're susceptible to that. Wow. Mm -hmm. Very good to know. My child and I will be having discussions about temporary <laughs> tattoos. <laughs> very, very good They to thought know. they were safe with the temporary, <laughs> huh? <laughs> Body art. So the American Academy of Pediatrics actually released its very first report on tattoos, piercings, and body modifications in youth, which is fascinating um, because obviously a lot of pediatricians are getting a lot of kids coming to their offices talking about tattoos, and parents want to know, I don't know what to do, you know, I need help, I need guidance. So they actually came out with a report, and some of the highlights are what you would mostly, um, what you would expect. Uh, you should be 18 years or older. <laughs> if you're under 18, you have to have parental consent, and obviously there are some states that will not allow minors to even get a tattoo or I was going to ask that. Is that even, you know, yeah, legal? It depends on the state that you're in, so that's good to, to look up. It also well, they cross state lines on spring yeah. breaks. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, if you want it bad enough, I'm sure yeah. you can wow. yeah, get a tattoo. <laughs> You'll totally get it. No tattoos to 50. You also want to be aware that it could affect your uh, ability to get a job. Because you can imagine if you have a tattoo showing on your neck or somewhere on your face or something, you know, somewhere that an employer can actually see it, that may be a red flag for that employer. It all depends on the kind of job that you're getting. Very true. It does it show, you know, first impressions are everything. Exactly. That's, that is a, a first impression. Yep. No matter yep. what it is. Yes. And that's what we're always teaching our kids. Yes. About. First impressions matter. Um, immunizations obviously need to be up to date. Um, but at the end of the day, it's body art. It's a form of expression. Um, it's not a sign of self-harm or a cry for help. Um, and, of course, you, can, you should always go to a licensed, reputable salon where they use sterile equipment. It should always be packaged. Um, so those are just some of the highlights that the report brought up for parents to be aware of. Definitely. And of course, one of the dangers, um, infection, right? So if you've ever had a tattoo 
and it pierces the skin, you bleed, you can transfer hepatitis, B or C, HIV. So these are concerns. We don't see that very often now. And so I think they've come more into vogue because people aren't dealing with a lot of those consequences, but they are true and real. So you definitely want to be in a clean, sterile facility um, that can ensure that part of your medical safety. Absolutely. I concur. (laughs) So next topic, since later in the show, we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Erica Bloomquist about how to talk to your kids about stressful news. Um, There was an article that was recently published in the Washington Post called Helping Kids Cope with Barrage of Scary News. Obviously, it seems like every week there's another news story about either a natural disaster or a man terrorist. I mean, or, just, yeah, it's or just some kind of something domestic. Yeah, yes. something. Something going on in the world. So obviously there's lots of stressful news going on every day. And many parents may be asking themselves, how do I talk to my kids about difficult topics? So some of the um, some of the tips that that were given in the article were to one check in often with your kids about how they're feeling and what they think. So obviously, I'm sure if uh, Jason, your kids came to you and asked you a question about you know what was going on in society. What kind of question? Yeah. Oh, what kind, what of, kind of question? It depends on the question. <laughs> but anything that was difficult, you always want to make sure, right? Is you check in with your kids. Right? Absolutely, check in with the kids because um, when I was younger, and I'm sure. Dr. Benjamin can say the same thing. Kids, we didn't really watch the news. True. So we, we got the news from passing by. Now you have social media. The news mm-hmm. is on social media. 24-7. All the time. So, the, you know, kids are getting their news from Instagram, from mm-hmm. Snapchat, from Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, so it's definitely you got to check in. You have to peeking over, see what they're looking at, what (laughs) are they commenting on, because it's getting kind of hot and heavy on social media now. It's not just for fun anymore. A lot of um, political things are being... And the comments drive it. I mean, they can be very intense or malicious. Exactly. There's a variety of comments, and so you don't really necessarily know how your child is interpreting one, the facts, and two, the the feelings behind it. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes, you know, we want to talk to them, even though it's difficult. As parents, we need to reach out and speak to them, because if not, it's left up to their imagination. And, yes. you, you know, you have to kind of feel and test the waters and see what they're interpreting, how they're feeling, how are they understanding the messages that are being thrown at them every single day. And so one one thought offered in these articles are to ask your child, especially the younger ones, well, what are your friends saying? Mm-hmm. And just listen, listen and listen <laughs> and not be judgmental or not yes. jump in there but just listen and kind of meet them where they're at. Absolutely. My favorite uh, response when I'm listening to my kids talk about, you know, things like that is, is and it, it's cliche, but how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. I'll always ask that question. How does that make you feel, Dad? No, seriously, how does that make you feel? And then I get their, you know, their impression that way. And just keep in an open dialogue, you mm-hmm. know, try not to be judgmental yourself, try not to discourage the, the discussion. You want to have that, that interaction. So, you know, even though you may not agree with being here, hear them out first and then give you two cents after. And I think that's important also to chime in with how you feel. You may feel the same. Like, I'm confused. I don't know why that happened. And that I don't know can be very powerful, you know? And just being open with them. And one thing, I remember when I was in middle school, you know, we heard, oh my gosh, by 2000 it would be the Jetsons and we're going to fly through the air (laughs) and the world would implode and, you know. And so 
a lot of times could be referential where you say, you know, when I was a kid, I remember feeling scared mm -hmm. that come year 2000, that was going to yeah, be the last year of the human race <laughs> as we understood. And right. so I think a little bit of that um, honesty and transparency with your child would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most recently we had mm. a, another End of the World scare, apparently. Yes, that was, last, And yes. that actually had my, my youngest, uh, 12, a little spooked because oh, no. they said, oh, it was backed up by science and religion. Oh, no, and I fake said, news. And I said, I said listen, listen, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Come hug me, hug me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know and so, so, <laughs> so it's very true. It's, it's out there and um, you've got to have that dialogue. Oh, that dialogue is so important. I heard somewhere like kids, it's more what they caught than what they're taught. So mm -hmm. if you don't t talk to them, they're just going to catch things in passing. So you really need to actually have that conversation. I absolutely agree. Very important. Great conversation, guys. Oh, thank you so much, Bahati. Great discussion. Before we get to today's guest, here's a word from our sponsor. Celebrating 25 years of specialized care. Happy 25th anniversary to Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. Hey, it's your boy DJ Irene. Guess what? I'm raising my red glove to raise awareness for Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. Yo, celebrating 25 years. Hey, what's up? It's Joey Vitone. Of course, I'm raising my red glove for Joe DiMaggio's Children's Hospital. 25 years, baby. What's up? It's the Shark Damon John with ABC Shark Tank. I am raising my red glove for the 25th anniversary of the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. Raise your glove, too. Welcome back, and thank you once again for joining us on the Healthy Parenting Podcast. I'd like to welcome today's guest, Dr. Erica Bloomquist. Hello, Dr. Bloomquist. Welcome, welcome. Hello. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited. Well, we have a very important topic to continue discussing today as far as children coping with stressful news. Mm -hmm. So tell us, your world is with, of course, breast oncology mm -hmm. and the surgical management of that? That's correct, yes. So I'm one of the um, three breast surgical oncologist over at the uh, Memorial Breast Cancer Center. So as you know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we are gearing up for that. And uh, as a part of that, we want to take the opportunity to address other issues that come up when we're dealing with breast cancer other than just the patient themselves. Right. Very important, very important. So here what we do, obviously, is patient, family-centered care. So give us a, some suggestions how parents could prepare to talk to their child or children about a diagnosis that they've just received regarding breast cancer. So with, you know, the increased screening and increased awareness, we are, you know, finding and also delaying in childbearing. So we're having more women that are in their mid to late 40s having children. So having children present at the time when we give patients the diagnosis is not uncommon. Um, we have women who bring their two months old to bringing their, you know, teenage children with them. And uh, as moms, you probably know, we always put everybody first, put our families first and our job first. And so for them, their first question is, well, what am I going to do about my family? So, you know, we just try to offer whatever we can. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a psychologist at all, but um, we do have those resources available at the Breast Cancer Center. We have um, psychologists devoted to having those oncology discussions. Um, so we kind of, you know, ask them for some tips. And I think it's just about um, education and making sure that our children sort of understand and any way that they can what's going on and of course that depends on how old they are absolutely before we uh, move a little further i just want to backtrack a little bit yeah. when you think of uh, breast cancer when you think breast cancer in general mm -hmm. um you're always immediately shifting to 
women's concerns. Now, is this primarily a woman's uh, or a female uh, problem? Or, uh, yes. So majority of patients or persons that develop breast cancer are women. About 1% per year are men. So it's not unheard of, but much less common. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to ask that question. <laughs> no, but it's it's good because every time I give a talk, I have to figure out how, how do I address the group? Because, you know, I have had men stand up and say, hey, you know, what about me? I'm here too. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. No, because I've, I've uh, read about uh, cases of breast cancer in men, and I, I thought that was, uh, I actually was surprised completely. So I just wanted to, just definitely yeah. wanted to bring it up. Men do have ducts. They don't have the lobules, the milk producing portion, but they do have the ducts. And sadly, they usually are diagnosed later because men don't think they can get breast cancer. Yeah, that's very true, very true. Uh, does the age of a child uh, determine how much or how little or how much detail we share when it comes to a breast cancer diagnosis or the symptoms or the treatments? I think so. You know, like I have a my seven-year-old son. You know, what I would say to him, I think, is much more basic than what you would say to a teenager. And their concerns are different. Their younger children just want to know that someone's going to be there to take care of them. And the older children want to know, you know, what's going to happen to my parent and how can I contribute? How can I help? I wonder if children, I would think, would wonder, well, what does that mean for me mm-hmm. in the sense that they're familiar with cases and if they've heard that breast cancer runs in their family, mm-hmm. do you recommend them talking about screening for the adolescents or older children? Like, How do you approach the medical complexities if it's something that runs in your family? So if you are you know, talking about hereditary gene mutations like BRCA1, BRCA2, there are criteria that we use to determine who should be tested. But the most important thing is, can the person psychologically deal with that diagnosis? Because there's decisions that have to be made based on you know, carrying a gene mutation, and are they okay to do that? Usually it's you know, patients in their mid-20s is kind of when we get to the time when we think that they can handle it and make good decisions. Um, so about the time we would start screening them is about the age of 25 using MRI for breast cancer specifically. So that's kind of the time when we might want to get into a detailed discussion to determine if they should be tested for it. So behavioral changes is something that I think parents should look out for because once a child is aware, it changes the dynamics of the daily living, I would think, at home, at least at the beginning. Yep. You know, it's, it's a really potentially grave disease. Um, to carry, but there's a lot of advances. Can you tell us about the hopeful side of sure. that diagnosis? Absolutely. You know, I think that's a great point because breast cancer treatment has come so far. All of the money and the time and the lives that have come before us have built this platform where the treatment today is so much better. We're finding cancers earlier and earlier. Women are surviving longer and longer. Even women who uh, have stage four or metastatic breast cancer are living a decade or more with our new treatment. So I think spinning your discussion with your family in terms of I'm doing, I'm going to do okay. There's treatments that are available for me and I'm going to be living right alongside you and let's focus on today and, um, you know, all of the wonderful advances that we have available today. As a physician, when they come into the office and they happen to have their child or children with them, do you address them at that time, or is that something that you wait till the actual person digests their news and then think that that's something that should be discussed at home at first? You know, I don't really differentiate. I kind of feel like they brought them with them. 
So right. they must want them to be part of it. And, uh, you know, we've, um, when I'm thinking of particularly of a patient who's in her early 40s, and she came in uh, when I met her to have that first discussion and brought her 10-year-old daughter with her. Uh, she has two children that are older, but she brought this 10-year-old. And, you know, we had the full discussion in front of the 10-year-old, and that girl, she became like the caretaker, and she loved that role. She helped her mom, and she tells her when to eat and to when to sleep and brings her her, you know, medications, and she felt so empowered, and I think if kids feel that they can do something, they're not helpless, just mm. bystanders, That's amazing. it does a lot of, of good for their for their psyche. Oh, tell that's us a the, wonderful point. Now tell us more, uh, if you can elaborate a little more, about the importance of screening uh, for moms and potentially dads, mm -hmm. and any new technologies that you can uh you know, talk about? Sure. So when we're screening for breast cancer, really the only tool that we know, in fact, decreases death is mammogram. So although we continue to find new and different modalities to screen, it's still the mammogram. But now we have um, here at, uh, in the memorial system, we have tomosynthesis, which is part of all the mammograms. And that's like a 3D view of the breast, which allows you to sort of delve in deeper, especially women who have dense breast, and find things, masses, calcifications much earlier than you would on traditional digital mammograms. So I think that's a huge advance, and that's how all of our mammo units are, are here. So I think that's a huge um, bonus for us. Um, ultrasound is a, a great method to go along with mammogram if you need it. Um, of course, there's MRI. There's a lot of different things that we can do. Um, the trick is just knowing what is right for each woman because a personalized approach is the most effective um, based on your risk factors, your age, all of those things. You want to choose the right things, not everything. Absolutely. About what percentage of... Uh, your patients go on to get actual genetic screening or testing? You know, so about 10 to 15 percent of breast cancers are hereditary. Mm -hmm. So there are groups that are known to be higher risk, like our Ashkenazi Jewish population, of which we have quite a, a large population in South Florida. So their risk of carrying a gene mutation, specifically BRCA1 and 2, is about 1 in 40, whereas the population as a whole is 1 in 400. So that group, um, we're much more um, alert to them. Um, other um, multiple family members, because there are other genes beside that that can I, increase right. your risk. Um, so it's just getting a very detailed history, and we're lucky here to have a genetic counselor who has 25 years of experience, and she's very adept at picking out all of those subtleties and, and making sure that we do the right thing and get the right people tested. Yeah. Absolutely. Now I have a semi-hypothetical. If there is a uh, family history of uh, breast cancer, um, when should or should at all or should the dad at all consider screening themselves and if there's anything you can you can say to bring that up so for you mean testing men for breast exactly. cancer screening Let's, yeah should should a, a father should a dad or should a you know a man in general with a family history of, of breast cancer maybe from un, uh, with their mother or, or the women's side should they consider or when is it okay to consider uh screening themselves. If um, their female family member has tested positive for a gene mutation, they should go ahead and get tested. Um, specifically to breast cancer, though, even if a man carries a gene mutation, their risk of actually the penetrance of them developing that disease is so low that Whereas women, we recommend mastectomies. For men, we don't, because even though they carry it, because of their small amount of breast tissue, they just don't seem to develop it at the same amount. So we don't do mammograms or ultrasounds. We recommend just exams. So that's reassuring. So yeah. annual, I guess. I mean, not to bring it back to dads, but you know, I'm a dad. So absolutely. just want to ask a little, little yeah, something. Yeah, absolutely. It's important. It's important. Mm -hmm. The men are important. I guess the final question, what happens when your tall turns to you and says, am I going to die? 
you know. Mm, that's so, so hard. You know, you yeah. try not to not to tear up when they come in and they ask you those things. But again, you know, focusing on, you know, we're living for today and we are um, we're going to fight this together and we're going we're gonna be okay and nobody knows the future, but we're gonna fight hard and we have all these new advances and they work so well that, you know, let's just move move forward from there and try mm-hmm. not to focus on it too much. If we can discuss uh, radiation myths about uh, screening for breast cancer and treatment for breast cancer. So in terms of screening, um, there the the dose of radiation that women get with a traditional mammogram is very, very low, much less than you get traveling across the country on the airplane or riding in your car. It's very little. Even that 3D that I was talking about, the dose is still low. So you're not going to develop breast cancer from screening for it. And um, uh, any latest types of treatments that you can, that is going on right now? So there's the surgical side, you know, my world. Um, the, the goal for us is to do the best cancer operation that we can, but do it in a way that leaves a woman feeling and looking like she hasn't really had breast cancer or been treated for it. So we use things like hidden scar. So for women that are going to get a lumpectomy, we try to hide the incision around the areola, under the arm, beneath the breast, so that they don't see it. And we're not reminded daily that we were treated. Uh, for women who need or want mastectomies, we offer nipple sparing mastectomies and the indications and the women that are able to get that has increased a lot. So in that case, when you look in the mirror, you see you, all of your skin, your nipple areola, and it's just the beneath the, that's been rebuilt. So I think, um, you know, leaving women like they don't feel like a mutant and they don't feel deformed is so, so important. And that's what I want for myself. And that's what, you know, we strive that's to do for our patients. Important. Mm-hmm. What if the ducks are involved? Are they a candidate for the nipple sparing? I mean, so as long as the nipple itself isn't involved, we've learned through you know decades of observational studies, like we can't really put women in two separate groups like randomly, but just following women over time that have had them, there's no increased risk of recurrence in the nipple areola. It's sort of a protected structure, I guess, because it's mm-hmm. functioned to breastfeed and everything else. It's like energized. It keeps, takes a look and it keeps on ticking. You can't really hurt it. So as long as it's not physically involved in the cancer process, you can safely leave it behind. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. Um, before you wrap up, uh, so uh, we have a diagnosis. We've told our child, um, you know, they've asked that, that heartfelt question. We've told them no, but they still become deeply depressed. Is there any um, type of resources you can recommend for parents to turn to for additional support for their children to help them cope? Sure. I think, you know, there's, you know, we're such a, an online uh, group nowadays that there's a lot of online resources. Um, cancercare.org is one. Um, the American Cancer Society, so cancer.org, I believe. So there's those are the big websites that are available. Um, like I mentioned, there's also um, oncologic social workers available here, as well as psychologists that can help uh, navigate and find additional resources uh, as well. Excellent. Yeah. That's like great information. Excellent information. I'd like to thank our special guest, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us on the Healthy Parenting Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, share it with everybody, and visit us on Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital's Facebook fan page.